0: We look at Holy Week. The church calls it Holy Week. It's the week where we kind of hit pause and we slow down and we look at the events from when Jesus, like today, rides into Jerusalem, right, his pronouncement of judgment over the temple, over the priesthood, the challenge of the powers that be and Christ's vocation to be Israel's Messiah, the Savior of the world, the upper room discourse where he spends the last few hours with his Chosen 12, one of them is a betrayer, right? And then we have the fake trial where it has to be at night because it's not legitimate. They can't find anything against Jesus to actually peg to him. It's an unbelievable, I mean, how many know someone would be able to find at least one thing against me if they were trying to hold me to trial? Scripture tells us in that fake trial of the Passion Holy Week, they couldn't find anything. And even when they would lob an accusation against Jesus, those wouldn't even agree. In other words, they had nothing on them, right? And then, obviously we remember the fake robe that the Roman soldiers put on him and the fake crown, thorns through his skull. So the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, is this fanfare of those who are expecting Jesus to be a kind of king, a kind of Lord that all of them were hoping for but all of which, almost all of which, missed because he did not come in the way they expected him. Are you tracking with me? So that's what we're going to look at today. I um, I would say I'm definitely uh, I lean towards being more of a preacher. Um, this is funny, thank you, Patricia. But this week, um, you know, learning the rhythm of of. This week, my aim really is to teach, very specifically, a, a way to never, ever, ever, ever read the entry story of Jesus into Jerusalem in the same way. That's my goal. You tracking with me? So by, by unfolding a little bit of what's happening for thousands of years leading up to this prophet who was a carpenter riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, I want to provide depth to all that's happening, ultimately leading to Jesus and the cross, and then we'll celebrate next week on Sunday, the empty tomb. All in favor, say amen. Amen. So are you ready to do some work with me? I need a little bit more than that. So, So Palm Sunday, let me just... Um, Justin, I got nothing. I got Cornerstone showing up instead of Palm Sunday. Sorry, this worked before the service, I I promise. I don't promise. There we go. Is that working? Praise God. So Palm Sunday, someone say, here comes the king. Forget it. That, that's not in my notes. That was just the Holy Spirit-inspired joke. He does that on occasion. Praise the Lord. So the idea is that Jesus is rolling into Jerusalem in a very kingly manner, right? He's, he's following all the right rules. It was very, very, very custom for, um, for the kings of Israel to roll in on a donkey and then garments down and just this sign. It's the first century equivalent of a red carpet, so we're gonna look at how did how do we get here? What is the real significance of what Jesus is doing? He's rolling on the donkey. And so to do that, we've got to do a little bit of work. Say, I'm ready to do some work, Pastor Chatty. So we gotta go back to the, the original vision of God for humanity and his world. The beginning of the Bible starts like this. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them in male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and read that next part with me, and subdue it. And the next phrase, rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So the idea is this, that the original vision for God and for humanity is that God would rule with, say with, Adam and Eve. If you know anything about uh, religions and the world, all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia and the Near East, and even the the surrounding area and current modern-day Iraq, if you look at all of history of religions, you will usually find that at the center of that religion is a temple, and in the center of that temple, to whatever God it is, there is an icon. Are you tracking with me? There's usually a statue, there's something that they can pinch incense to, they can slaughter a sacrifice for. So what separates God and creation and Christianity apart is that we actually don't have that. What we see in creation is God creates the world as his temple. And instead of saying, hey, here's what I look like in fashion and then put this on your little pedestal and worship it. He makes us to be his icons and image bearers. It's unlike any other religion in the world. Obviously, we don't worship ourselves. But God is saying he's so devoted to this plan of creation and being with Adam and Eve. The idea is that he is the king of the cosmos and his image bearers, that's you and me, say you and me, we are to function as prince and princess. Those who could, you saw in the, in the previous passage, all the times in your Bible you can look at rule and subdue. The idea is that God the creator wanted to make image bearers who could serve as co, say co, rulers with God. Prince and princess. Kings and queens with little k's submitted to the one true king of the world. But we know what happens. And I wanted to start with that because that is God's original vision for humanity. But we know that not the, Adam and Eve are not the only ones in the garden. There was a slithery, stinky snake. That's why I hate snakes. I mean, I mean for those who like snakes, I just don't see it. And we know that the serpent, the accuser, in the scriptures, in the Hebrew, it's just the Satan. And he uh, it says, God, God, you know, he knows, he's holding out on you. He knows that when you eat uh, from the tree, the one thing he told them not to do, that when you do that, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. Come on, men. How many are still bitter? <laughs> then the eyes of what both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was what? walking in the garden of the cool of the day. He's hanging out in his creations, his temple. It's where he dwells and lives. There's no building. He made a world to dwell with us on. Are you tracking with me? And he says, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, read it with me, where are you? And so what we see next is actually um, Dr. Ed Robinson. I heard him preach probably four, 12 years ago, I'll never get over it, it was at a college retreat. He's a former seminary professor and just a brilliant guy. And I remember him standing to a bunch of college kids, myself being included in that retreat. And he's saying possibly the greatest act of mercy was when God banished Adam and Eve in light of their nakedness and sin. Because he didn't want them to eat from the tree of everlasting life. So that they would live an entire existence aware of their shame, their nakedness, and their distance from God. I'll never forget Dr. Robinson, all those years ago. And so he banishes, the king banishes the prince and the princess. He removes their fig leaves. He provides the only sufficient covering for their nakedness. And here we see the very first sacrifice in the the scriptures. So he slaughters the animal. It cost when we sin and we usurp the authority of the king of the world, blood is always the price. Are you tracking with me? And so he kills the animal, and he covers humanity.. Yes. And so what we see here is this, from Genesis to 3 to 11, we see a rapid downward spiral of what humanity and the world look like when humanity desires to rule, not submitted to and with God, but apart from God. How many know, the man, just turn on the news. We're not doing too good. Right? I mean, it's not an accident. Genesis 4, the first children of the result of this fall and the sin of Adam, that those first set of brothers, one kills the other. I mean, it just goes downward from there. So God's vision, again, we're talking about wherever my palm branch went. This is background to this, okay? Keep this in your mind. Keep it in your mind. And so we see God calls. I'm going to skip some of this stuff, but you can just write it in your notes if you have a pen Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, and Genesis chapter 22 provide all of what I'm going to summarize here. So God says, okay, okay, you want to rule apart from me? So he cleanses the earth with the flood and Noah, but the problem is when they get off of the boat, what happens? Noah plants a vineyard. He has too much To drink, one of his sons looks upon his nakedness, and we see that, man, even though God hit reset on the world, the problem was inside of the heart of humanity. Are you tracking with me? It's an inward rebellion that happened that usurped the authority of the king of the world, that instead of ruling with him, remember, God wanted to rule with us, say with us, but we did not want to submit to his rulership. We wanted to run our own kingdom. And so God and his plan is like, okay, instead of it being my plan for the world, I'm just going to try to do my plan through a family. And so he calls Abraham and look at this promise. Go from your country, your people, your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. Look at this. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all, read that with me, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I mean, that's a pretty good gig. Again, this is God's vision for humanity. Go back to Genesis 1. But because of our usurping his authority, and we don't want to rule with God on his earth, we want to rule in spite of God and call it our way, our knowledge, our agenda. God says, you know what, I'm going to choose a man and build a family through him to model to the world that's in rebellion against me what ruling with me and living life in me looks like so that they'll look at it and go, man, there is no other king but God. So this is, this is, this is just Bible 101. I'm aware of some of you are like this is elementary, but I, you got to see how this fits into, the, into Matthew 21, which we're going to. This triumphal entry and what's happening here. This is the background. God wants to rule with us. Say with us. He wants to do life with us. And so we see from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob to Joseph that God raises up Moses and rescues Israel from slavery. He gives them the law and he sets up residence. If you read Exodus. Right in the middle of camp is to be this living, fiery reminder of God's holy presence. But you see, because of sin, God can no longer just walk with us in the cool of the day. Say, come on, I miss the cool of the day. But now he's got to live behind a... By fabric, and he's got to live behind a curtain that's heavy and thick, and he's got to live at a distance from his people, even though he still makes provision through sacrifices, through law-keeping, through rituals and cleansings, so that he can at least still live and be among his people. How many know we serve a merciful God? He was merciful and gracious in the Old Testament. And so we see in Exodus that God's original vision is still that I would be your king and you would be my people. In Exodus 19.6 is that great Um, summative statement that says, I want you to be a nation for me of priests, people that live in, this is what Adam and Eve were in the garden, but there was no temple because the world was God's dwelling. But they were his priests, his image bearers who were meant to experience his blessing and then fill the earth and reflect that blessing to the world. Still his original plan and agenda. And so we see this. That plan A for God's world is that God alone would be king. That humans from Adam and Eve to Abraham would rule under God. But humans usurp God's rule. But God in his mercy forgives us. And then he forms a covenant with a family. This is just the summative of what's happening here. Are you still tracking with me? What I want you to be able to walk away from today is to be able to read the Bible in an ABA format. A, God's original vision is to be king over the world. B, we're going to get to it now. And then A, God is now ruling the world through Jesus. So that you can take your Bible for the rest of your life and be able to go, Man, I was given a tool today to see what's happening behind the stories and make sense of how it all threads together with one cohesive story. So we see God is, even though the, the Israelites are rascals, someone say rascals, and even though God's in the middle of the camp and he's, his fire and his cloud, if you read Exodus 40, are leading and guiding God's people, the problem is not an outward problem of proximity, it's an inward problem of rebellion. I'm going to turn to the person next to you and say, he's talking about you, dude. Unless they're in Christ and have experienced this, okay, Anyway. He's talking about you and your capacity. So we see this is God's plan A. Everyone say plan A. I'm moving forward. Hurry up. My goodness. But then what happens? Moses, Exodus, through the Red Sea. Forty years. How many know God's not in a hurry for the unbelieving generation to die off? That'll preach. But anyway. Joshua. Caleb, the only ones of the 12 spies who believe that God can actually deliver on his promises. Joshua leads the people of Israel now, not through the Red Sea, but through the Jordan, to inherit the promised land. Right? So this is, uh, this is Eden. This is the goal for God to give the people a land and to set up shop right in the midst of them and to mediate their presence. Then after Joshua, he doesn't raise up a successor. We have a period of judges, and this is like whiplash to your spiritual neck right? Israel does good. Then what happens? How do we get this deliverance again? They forget. They go into sin and rebellion. And so God raises up numerous judges that there's little pockets of revival that happens to God's people. How many know we need revival still? We constantly need to be awakened up from our slumber. And so after the judges, God raises up Israel's first, you know, I I know Moses would be considered a prophet, but really vocational prophet. And it's Samuel, right? And here's what happens, and here's where plan B comes into shape. Oh, mercy. Plan B is this. It says in 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, read this. I'll read it. So Samuel's getting old, and his sons are corrupt, and up to this point, remember, God is still king, even though they're they're sinful and they're rebellious, but he's living among them, and and finally, the the, the paradigm shifting request of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter eight. Look what it says. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, "You are old, thank you, and your sons do not follow your ways." Now a point here. Look what it is. This is revolutionary in the history of Scripture and salvation. A point for us: a what? A king to lead us. Such as all the other nations have. Do you see that there? God is king. Someone say that with me. God is king. And even though they were rebellious, God, through his mercy, continued to make provision. And his original vision was still to be king amongst a bunch of co rulers, co heirs, those who would rule with him. They continually bowed their hearts to the idolatry, to the impurity, to the immorality of the nations around them. And now it crescendos after a season of judges. The people of Israel are like, dude, this is lame. Let's just appoint a king so that we can be like everyone else. And we see here, this is all background. Plan B. God alone is still king, but Israel wants to rule Israel is still to rule God's created world under God but Israel wants to usurp God's rule. Okay, we're tracking. So God accommodates Israel by granting them a human king. Who was that first king? Come on, Bible quizzers. King Saul and how long did that last? 2-3 chapters, right? Until he usurps God's rule and he makes any sacrifices before long he's making monuments to himself. You think We would learn after all these thousands of years, there's only one sufficient one to rule. I'm getting ahead of myself. But then after Saul loses the anointing and loses the spirit, remember, it's the people's idea that they want a king instead of God being their king, okay, After he loses the anointing, he calls Jesse and all of his sons, and then the whole Old Testament almost becomes about David, this man after God's own heart, this king. But how many know that David's own sons incited rebellion against him and wanted to usurp his throne, so it still didn't go very well. But God continues to forgive Israel of its sins through the temple, through sacrifice, forgiveness, and purity. How many know we serve a gracious God? Chad, why are you telling us all of this? Because this is the background. If God's plan A was to be king of the world with his image bearers, God's plan B, he made provision. They asked for a king even though he was a sufficient one. Someone say amen. amen. But he says, okay, Saul, aunt, not him. He's not the one I'm going to do this through. He finds David. And this is why all of those prophetic promises, there's 50, 60, 80, there's a ton of promises that someone is going to now come, a king is gonna come from David's line who's gonna put the world back to rights. Plan A, plan B, all throughout, their hearts aren't changed. So here's this promise of all of scripture. God is gonna send another one Just like Adam, and just like King David, only he is going to have a perfect record. He is going to overthrow God's enemies once and for all. He is not going to usurp God's authority. He's going to gladly, this is why if you read Isaiah 40 through 66, he's going to be the servant of God, which is what Israel and Adam and Moses and all of us were always meant to be. And in that submission and service, we inherit and experience the abundance of life. You have to see the original lie of Satan in the garden is still the lie that we all believe. That life submitted to God is restrictive and it's crummy and it's boring. But the exact opposite is true. When you get aligned to the reality of the only fit one to rule the world, man, life takes off and it actually begins. So plan B, God makes provision, and so the rest of the Old Testament is God working within the plan B system. Okay, they wanted a king. Finally, I found David. Okay, I promised him that there's going to be a descendant that comes from his line that's going to sit on an everlasting throne that will never be thwarted or overthrown. Everyone said, amen. Hurry up. So, oh, we're getting there. So then Jesus rose up. In the midst of 400 years of silence from Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, to Matthew, the beginning of the New, and up up until about 150, 200 years even before Jesus, there kept these charismatic leaders would rise up in the wilderness, and they would think, "I'm the one who's going to come and bring Israel back and make the world right," and I'm. I'm going to overthrow the oppressors. And so you see Judah the Hammer or Judah Maccabeus, and you see Simon, the, the star, they call them, and these the, uh, Barcoba, these three or four key figures, even Herod. They think they're the ones who are going to be the one who can rule on God's behalf. And then Jesus shows up, and here's what happens to him. As Jesus was being baptized, this was like his anointing as king. He came up out of the water and look at this. At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descend on him like a dove and it lighted on him and a voice from heaven said, read it with me, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. I don't have any time to show you how these two declarations, this is my son, it goes back to Psalm chapter two where God said I'm going to give my son the, the nations as his inheritance So the idea, as Jesus is baptized and he gets up and the Spirit anoints him, God the Father pronounces that this boy, this is the one who's going to rule the world. This is the one. And then, who I am well pleased. This goes all the way back to Isaiah 40 through 66, where there's this servant that Isaiah prophesies about who's going to please God in every way please him so much so that he's going to live his entire life and be led like a lamb to the slaughter and give his life as a ransom for many. This one sentence has the entire plan B wrapped up and being fulfilled through Jesus. This one sentence, this is my son whom I love. And then Jesus starts his ministry after he gets tempted like Israel in the wilderness. Only he doesn't bow to the temptation to usurp the authority of his father. But on three accounts, he answers the accusations and the temptations of the enemy with one center burning in his heart. I've come to do it his way or no way at all. So get behind me, Satan. Every one of the temptations. Come on. And so look at this language. I want you to see this. This is the story of Scripture. It's not an accident that Jesus' first sermon, look what he preaches. From that time on, he began to preach, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven has come near. And so this is the biblical background behind all of this. Jesus is writing on thousands of years, at least a thousand, since David was the man that he found after his heart. For 1,000 years, the people of God are still suffering. They've already been delivered from Exodus, from from Egypt. Now Assyria to the north has ransacked Israel, and then Babylon for the the southern kingdom of Judah, and then they are allowed to build this crummy temple, but God never came back and filled it, and for 536 years, they're longing, and then Herod thinks, man, if I just polish up the temple, God will come back. He still doesn't come back, and then this Jewish carpenter gets baptized, the Father splits heaven. And anoints him as king of the world. And his first message that he ever preached was, Guys, repent because the king of the world is now walking on the earth. Repent. What's that word mean? The guy, Hal Perkins, is getting ready to come to our conference. He's the one who gave me this idea. Repent means to change kings. That's the real biblical. And so when Jesus, this is the very beginning of his ministry. You see, he's doing all of this in light of the biblical story. Plan A was, I just wanted to rule with you. Let me be the king. You be my co-kings and rulers, but just do it with me. We don't want you. We want a king. Jesus rose up and goes, I'm plan A, revised and edited and fulfilled. Repent. The king is here. Repent, get in alignment with my kingdom. I'm coming to do what you've hoped every one of your kings and rulers tried to do but couldn't because they were a part of the rebellion, and I'm not part of the rebellion. I'm the servant that wants to follow and obey my father. Come on, somebody. We're almost there. We're almost there. (coughs) Praise God. We're there. So look who do you say that I am? His disciples, he asked his disciples, I don't have time to go there, Matthew 16. But Peter answers, why is this so small? Read it with me. Simon Peter answered, You are the, pause, what's this big fancy word? It just means Christ, it means anointed one or king. You have to see this. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything, right? You're the Messiah, you're the king. You're this, okay, keep reading with me. The son of the living God, which is another way to say king. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for what has been, I can't read it, it's too small. But this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So we see right in the middle of Jesus' ministry, there's the confession. Yep, you guessed it, I really am king. And then, come on, we got to fast forward and get to our triumphal entry. And then Jesus tells him on multiple occasions, three to be exact, he predicts that I'm a different kind of king. I'm not rolling up and to overthrow Rome with swords and guns and bombs and whatever. They're going to betray me. Look at what he says. We're, th- 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 we're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to deliver me to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn me to death and hand him over to the Gentiles and be mocked and flogged and crucified. But come on, somebody, on the third day, he will be raised to life. So finally... Here's the ultimate question. I tried. That was too much. We should have done a whole, like, six weeks. So when Jesus rolls into Jerusalem, do you think he has anything specific in mind? All the crowds think it's going to happen one way, but Jesus in his heart, because of his baptismal identity... You're my son who I am loved with, I'm well pleased. And he knows his vocation is not to win by feeding the world stones into bread. It's not to win by healing every disease and sickness in all of Jerusalem and Judea, so they come and they bow before him. It's not to win by performing magical arts and jumping off temples and angels helping him levitate. Jesus knows the only way this puppy gets turned around and God's original vision for humanity can become a reality is if he goes to the cross. There is no other king or president or ruler who leaves a higher place, right? His glory, Jesus leaves his glory, and he knows his earthly throne has wood and splinters and is going to cost him his life. So, as they approached, I love this. We'll just read the story and then close. As they approached Jerusalem, Matthew 21, finally we're here, Palm Sunday. They came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them. Come on, that's a great one. And he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, he quotes Isaiah and Zechariah here. See your king, someone look at that, comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Who, whose campaign has ever been he, this president or king or ruler or prime minister comes humble and gentle and in peace? Okay, no one. Okay, thank you. The disciples went, and they did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches, let me see them, from the trees, and they spread them on the road. Again, this is a first-century version of a red-carpet entry. And the crowds that went ahead of him, those that followed, shouted, say it with me, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they asked, say it with me, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. So obviously what's happening here is this. This is a royal, totally on purpose for Jesus The king of the cosmos is walking around with skin and bone. He's riding a donkey into the sacred city. Only what's supposed to be happening in the sacred city is not. The sick are not being healed. The marginalized do not find a place of refuge in a home. Look at this. Look at this. God's presence is not being mediated in an accurate way to the nations. Listen, you have filled the court of the Gentiles, I'm not going to get a chance to read it, with all of your sailing and where the the, the thieves and where the the nationalistic, zealous uh, freedom fighters can go and hide away from Rome. You've done everything the opposite of what the temple in Jerusalem was ever supposed to be for the world. And so when Jesus rose up, he knows that, man, he is getting ready to have a massive collision with an entire system that Israel has adopted because they still fail to acknowledge that there is only one king, and it's not them, and it's not Herod, and it's not all the prefects, and it is not Caesar, but the one who comes humble and submitted to his father as coming to restore, to remake, and to bring God's original vision to its intended purpose through what he's about to do next. And so, Jesus says this in two more verses. When I am lifted up on the earth, I will draw, who? All. All people to myself. And what was he saying by saying this? To show the kind of death he was going to die. And one more. This is the statement that, I don't know how, what was involved here but how many know they nailed it even though it was a mockery and when he was crucified we're going to get there all next week so I don't want to fast forward above his head they placed the written charge against him look at the charge against him read it with me this is Jesus I'm just going to end with an amazing quote if that's okay with you I love it look at this The crucifixion was the appropriate and long prophesied way by which the Messiah, what does Messiah mean again? Thank you. Would come to be king of all the world. The Messiah is to come into his kingdom through a horrible death. And those who not only follow him but are called to implement his work must expect that their royal task, for such it is, will be accomplished in the same way by the same, say it with me, means. I love it. The crucifixion is the moment when the story of Israel reaches its climax. The moment when at last the watchmen on Jerusalem's wall see their God coming in his kingdom. The moment when the people of God are renewed so as to be at last the final royal priesthood who will take over the world, not with the love of power. I love this. But with the power of love. The moment when the kingdom of God overcomes the kingdom of the world. It is the moment when a great old door locked and barred since our first disobedience by Adam and Eve swings open suddenly to reveal not just the garden open once more to our delight, but the coming city, the garden city that God has always planned and is now inviting us to go through that door and to build with him. I love it. The dark power that stood in the way of his kingdom vision has been, say it with me, defeated, overthrown, rendered null and void. Its legions will still make a lot of noise and cause a lot of grief, but the ultimate victory is now assured. This is the vision the evangelists, the gospel writers offer us as they bring together the kingdom and the cross. And we're gonna look at how God became king throughout this entire next week. This is the groundwork. So what is our response to all of this? Again, did the best I could, amount of time I had, to give you a framework, plan A, plan B, plan A, revisited, fulfilled through the cross. My contention is this, this week, as we enter into Holy Week, and if some of you, I'm, I, I, to fast or to do something this week to allow the grace of God to jar you from your normal rhythm and schedule so we can press in as a church, afresh and anew, to the work and the suffering and triumph of Jesus it'd be a powerful week. Here's our response to all of this. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, what? Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If a cross is the lot of the king of the world, how many know there's a cross for us? Because God still wants to do all of this thing with us, in us, and through us. Plan A is back on track, baby. And it's going to be brought to its completion when Jesus splits the sky and comes again. Amen? Take up your cross. Deny yourself. And follow me. This is the reason to finish our Galatians series. Look, I was a stinker and I got it in. I had to preach on Palm Sunday, okay? Get over it. But this is why Paul says, he ends Galatians 6 with this. If you've been with us, we're going through Galatians. We're supposed to be. This is why Paul says in Galatians six fourteen, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It wasn't Mary Christ and Joseph. Are you tracking with me? I'm not being cute. It's, and if you thought that, you're not, it's okay. Christ is his title. He's the king of the world, the, the ruler. May I never boast except for in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world and its ways have been crucified to me and I to the world. The only thing that counts now is being made a new creation through the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul ends his letter that way. The only thing that counts is Jesus making you a brand new creation through his grace. ABA, plan A, plan B, and the triumphal entry. God enters and now Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Could you stand with me? Just